This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we learn some shipwright skills with my friend Keith Mitchell, let's just take care of a little bit of business. Number one, you know where I'm going to go with this, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your handles, for your knives, for your wood. I just sent out a 1084 Integral Bolstered Chef Knife carbon steel and I gave it a lick of axe wax and then I hit it with some the heat gun and then I wiped it off and then I sent it on its way knowing that it's not going to have any problems no patinas no rusting nothing because it's all natural food safe I don't have to really worry about anything icky going on my customers and if you go to axewax.us put in promo code fullblast10 you're going to get 10% off if you're in the UK go to UK Knife Supplies Dot com and Toby's going to honor uh, Full Blast 10. If you're in Australia, NordicEdge.com.au. They're nice enough to take a Full Blast 10 for Axe Wax. And if you're in the EU, KnifeMaterial.at. Keith Colby's nice enough to do... Um, he's nice enough to do... Full blast ten, and I think Keith's got some new steel coming in pretty soon. If you're in the if you're in the UK, I'm just in the EU, I'm just telling you. If you're interested in the uh, in some new steels, go check what he's doing out. He's got some new stuff coming in. So thank you, Axe Wax. Thanks guys for sponsoring the show. And next thing, let's talk about your website, guys. Telling you, some of you have not figured this out. I see posts all the time that says DM me for prices. Dude, you're 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 sending out chum to sharks. You're sending out chum to chum in the waters, and the chum in the waters is going to tire kickers, window shoppers, and not the people who you're hoping for. So what you really should do to avoid all this time suck is get yourself a good website. Go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, fill up the paperwork, and Andreas Kalani will get you into a good website. Or if you have a website that just needs some zhuzhing up, he'll fix that too if you need your logo fixed. He, I know he fixed one for Ben Seacrest, did a nice job, Fiery Ice and Forge, did it fix his logo up, any kind of graphic design. If you're going to get a tabletop for a, uh, for a convention, go to akinteractive.com slash full blast and fill out the paperwork and Andreas Kalani will, will figure out what you need and get you squared away. He's a maker making websites for the makers. He knows what he's doing. All right. Andreas is the man. I talked to him a couple a week, a week or so ago. We had a great conversation. He's on board with full blast and I appreciate it. Last thing is I cannot thank Trojan Horse Forge enough for their stable rail knife finishing vice. This thing is awesome. I have taken all my wooden blocks, all my wooden you know, two-by-four fixtures that I used to use, I put them away. They're now gathering dust because the stable rail knife finishing vise from Trojan Horse Forge is all I need. And it isn't just for handles. You can bolt some plates onto it, and then you can hand sand your blades. It's got rubber backing all over the place. They send you a pile of rubber. It's great, and, it, and you don't have to no tape anymore. You don't have to protect your stuff. It's, it's, they really, really made a beautiful product, this vice. 
devices for the handle and for the blade, and it's great. And if you have a distal taper, it supports your distal taper. If you have an integral bolster, it supports that. If you have a cur- kukri or a curved blade, it it moves so it adjusts so it supports your blades. It the thing is amazing. So what you need to do is you need to go to their website, TrojanHorseForge.com, and you need to sign up for their newsletter. I wish I could tell you to buy it now. I wish I could give you a, a discount code, but they are like th- these are going like hotcakes. So what they do is they'll make a batch, and if you're on their newsletter, they'll send you a newsletter report as soon as they get closer to being bought, and then you have the opportunity to buy one or get in line to buy one. Uh, they're also really, you know, they're, they appreciate you, so they're giving you an opportunity to pay in installments as well. They're great guys, and this vice is awesome, and I really appreciate them sending you out one. I love it, and if you do happen to go get one from this podcast, let them know you heard it from me. It would help me out. So you can also follow them on Instagram at uh, Trojan underscore horse underscore forge. Go to Trojan horse forge.com and get yourself on that newsletter and get yourself one of these stable rail knife vices you will not regret it my guest is keith mitchell aka shipwright skills on instagram keith is a very fascinating guy because he is he's he is into not only the traditional style of woodworking but he's on the cutting edge of woodworking too he is a boat builder he's a tool maker he is also an underrated illustrator and i might add a, i might add a double underrated writer keith how are you i'm pretty well how are you I just was on your website looking at your blogs that you've been, you started a long time ago, like 2010, 2011, something like that. Yeah, that's probably about right. And you were documenting the projects you were working on and I really enjoyed seeing them. But what I was really fascinated with was your writing. Your writing is very good. I felt like you really enjoyed it. I do. I really enjoy writing. Um, I think probably when I was young, I thought I would be some kind of writer or some sort of artist probably, but I definitely always liked writing stories and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I guess, uh, I guess you could say I like to write for sure. I like to read, which I guess helps. Really? That's, 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 what is, what is reading? I'm just kidding. I I haven't read in a little while, but I do have a lot of books still from when I used to read. (laughs) When I was looking at one of your uh, posts, it was about when you were doing a canoe and you were describing canoes and you were talking about the, you know, how you can move it and how you can, how nice it is to be able to be on a lake. And and you were just, you were painting a picture that was a little bit more than just a description of what you were making. And I felt like the blog was really, uh, was a really great avenue for you because you were not only the pictures great and it was really amazing seeing you building boats and stuff like that, but you were really painting a picture with your words that video just doesn't really capture. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't ever really get a lot of feedback on it, so I kind of haven't really done it that much in recent years. But um, I just wanted to have a way that, you know, I could look back on it and other people, if they wanted to learn a little bit, could. I wrote something on one of your you know. posts. I don't, I don't know if you checked oh, yeah? it. I, I, I uh, filled out the paperwork to uh, oh, cool. to, to, to get one. But, you know, I don't think people like blogs anymore. I don't think people want to read that no, I don't think anymore. they have the attention span. I think um, most people, they can look at pictures. And even now, it's not even pictures. It's like you need a video yeah. for some reason. I don't know. Um, yeah, the blog the blog thing is probably gone for a little while. Maybe it'll come back. But um, 
I don't know. I don't know where this world is going with words. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I remember when I was in the restaurant industry and blogs, I guess this was like 2000, 2001. And blogs were first starting to kind of get a little gain popularity. And I was in the restaurant business and there was somebody told me that there's this waiter who's writing this blog called Waiter Rant waiter rant and he was telling waiter stories like bad customers or weird things that happened and they were like you know four or five paragraphs short story of something that had happened to him and they were so great and it was just like every day he would put like you know two paragraphs together but you know a guy was a dick to it you know a guy and his wife was it was a dick to him or they didn't want to chart you know you know they sent some back a million times or and then he was kind of doing inside baseball of like the restaurant industry and I was just like that was the only I think that that's the only blog I ever read religiously and I don't think it works anymore I don't think people want that anymore yeah I think it's it's too um you got to go search for it you know and I think everybody wants things to just sort of come like full well full blast right in the face like a fire hose you know and and if you're reading blogs you got to kind of pick around and if one doesn't hit or something you might just be like well I'm done with this one and then you know, are you going to go looking for new blogs to read? Uh, I don't know. But I, it, I think, I think I that know. I think that there's some. I mean, here's 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 what I'm getting at. Because you also do these really beautifully illustrated kind of. I don't want to say cartoons. I want to say like a comic book or something like that. You're you're. I know that you. There's just no way that you just pick that up on your own. You've obviously taken some classes on drawing and how to do like storyboards and how to make like that classic comic book style. Um, no, not really. I mean, uh, books out of the library, I guess, here and there. Um, but no, no formal training of any Really? That surprises me because they're they're so like, they're so well constructed as like, they read like a comic book page would. And they were just, they're very, they're very, um... how should I say? They're very, uh, they're invocative of what you're doing. I like the fact that you're you're creating things. You're you know woodworker, uh, and you you make these beautiful things. But then you kind of like, I like. I guess maybe it's because I try to do it too. Is you add context and you add extra content to what you're doing. Like you did one. I think it was one drawing of a hand plane. And then you had all the parts of the hand plane and then you, you know, you had arrows and like little, you know, things, stories and stuff like that. And it really kind of created, you're creating more of a deeper feeling towards what you're making. Yeah, I think a lot of woodworking stuff is so sort of antiseptic when you read it. Like if you read a woodworking book, it's just like a... You know, this is a hand plane, and this is the knob, and this is the frog, and this is the tote. And it's like, that's great and everything, but I kind of, I don't know, I'm a visual learner, so I think about it. I I, I sort of look at look at a thing, and as I'm looking at a thing, you know, it's like the Terminator, you know, when he has, like, all the words right, at the bottom of the right, screen. Right, and it's like, right. this is a woman, and, yeah, yeah. you know, the blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, I kind of see things like that a little bit. Not that I'm the Terminator or anything, but just that that's... I categorize things and I analyze things. So when I go to think about something like a hand plane, I'm not thinking about the words more. I'm more thinking about what it's doing and all that kind of stuff. So I think the visual medium helps. Um, And I just haven't really seen a lot of that. No. 
No. So I, you know, I don't know. It's, it would be a fun thing to do. It, you know what? It, it is kind of like it's it is it's interesting because like, you know, we, we have we, you and I both we have friends, mutual friends or they do YouTube. And there seems like to be this formulaic um, formulaic. I, I like to see them see all these like videos as like a mathematical equation is like you got to get this shot. You got to get this shot. You got to get this shot. And then only because, you know, when I've done any kind of like video with anyone, they they have very a specific, t- you know, timetable and, and uh, program in regards to what they have to do. And it, it, it almost seems like they all kind of run on each other and, you know, they're not they all feel the same. And, but what what you're what you do with your, you know, the creating extra content maybe you're writing a little something and spending a little time writing something or doing this little drawing you're you're fleshing something out in a way that it, it gives you kind of complete understanding of what you're doing thanks for noticing that i i agree with you that uh i don't know if it's necessarily like a laziness thing but i think a lot of people sort of do a project film it and then they're like well you have to watch it because it's cool right it's like yeah well it might be cool but is it interesting you know, and then if it's not interesting, they're like, well, I'll ham it up until it's funny. And it's like, well, that's funny. But is it teaching me anything? And I kind of I don't know. I feel like, yeah, you should have a little bit more value than that. Like, I don't know. It just takes a lot to get me to watch a YouTube video, I guess is what I'm I think saying. it's our age. I think it's our age. <laughs> yeah, that could be like, I mean, I'm assuming I'm older than you. But I, at the same time, like I have a real hard time sitting down and watching YouTube videos like yeah. I also I mean, yeah. I have a couple TV shows I kind of watch. Or like you know streaming shows that I kind of watch just to kind of like chill out, but like if I had like a laundry list of all of my friends' YouTube videos to watch, I don't know if I could do it. To be honest with you, I mean it's like, and the other thing is it's funny that you mentioned that because I don't feel like I need to learn anything. Like I don't even really I'm not even interested in in tips. I'm just just kind of hold my attention. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I mean it's yeah I don't know it's it's weird because there's like there's like the this old house style of you know, a video where you're, you know, this is what siding is and this is how you put the siding on the building and now let's go to the next thing. Right. And then there's like, you know, the Jimmy Duresta where it's like a fly on the wall and it's you're just watching what he's doing as he's doing it. He's not, sometimes he's explaining, but, you know, you're just doing that fly on the wall thing. And um, I don't know, there's there's middle ground in there, I guess. But I feel like a lot of it is either somebody staring into the camera, explaining or over explaining or just uh, watch me do this, you know, I, and uh, neither of those really capture my attention. <laughs> I tell you what I think that to me, because I watch a lot of cooking videos, I, I like short cooking videos. But there are some and I'm not just saying this because he uses my knives, but Jacques Pepin the famous French chef, he's in the United States now. I've been, you know, cla- probably the on the pillar on everyone's Mount, all the chefs Mount Rushmore of chefs. His stuff, three to seven minute videos are what everybody should be focused. Everybody should be like trying to get because he makes everything very reasonable, easy to follow, simple but the lighting is good. He's got an interesting delivery. It's like seven minutes. You pick a few things up and he's like grandpa. He's like cool grandpa. He's just making it happen, you know? And I feel yeah. like, I feel like if I were to do a video, which I would never, I just, you, if you, I'm telling you this right now, Keith, if you ever see me start talking about my YouTube channel, 
someone's fucking paying me because <laughs> there is just no way I'm going to roll the dice and hope to like build something. No take way. the money, Jeff. Just take the money. I'll take It'll the money. Okay. Dude, I get no problem. Listen, I, this 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 thing, full blast and, and knife talk. I thought about it because I somebody says you're in the content business. I'm like, I'm not in the fucking content business. I I'm such a huge fan of the of the medium of radio that like this is. This is getting something that I've always wanted since I was a child, and I enjoy yeah. it and it's doing well. But if I had to do any editing, like once in a while when somebody drops out, I have to like find out where they dropped out, and then I have to write an email to Craig saying, okay, at 55 minutes, he says this, and then I said this, and maybe you can splice them together there, and let's hope that they don't, you know... I don't want any of that. I want once and done. I got my ad reads and then I have my conversation with you and that's as much content as I can handle. I can't handle editing. I can't handle any of it. doesn't interest me at all. Yeah. The, just the word content kind of just gets me. I don't know what that is. It, it feels like uh, cereal or flour. Or yeah, it, it, it totally. Know, it's like I'm making some, uh, I'm making some oatmeal, I'm making some content like Give me something more than content. I want some, something more than content, please. You mean as a word? Yeah. Yeah, but just, then if they give I you the razzle-dazzle. describe it. But yeah. if they give you yeah, some, like, high-end razzle-dazzle, you're just going to be like, ugh, is this some fucking... Yeah. Jesus All right. Perfect. That's a good point. You're right. You can't you're right. give them... You gotta, you're either, it's either got to be, like, you know, sterile, or it's got to be razzle-dazzle, <laughs> and you're going to be miserable either way. Can't have them either yeah, way. Yeah, I'm miserable either way, usually. <laughs> me too. All right, bring me back. Bring me back. Bring me back to young Keith Mitchell. Are you? Have you always been from Vermont? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah, and I, I uh, grew up in Vermont, out in the country, doing my thing. Um, my dad's a carpenter, and uh, always kind of was watching him build stuff growing up. And guess I got it in my blood somehow. Were you? Even were you though, just, did you live near water or anything like that? Um, not really. Um. Out in the forest, usually um, a little bit of canoe time was spent, but um, not really. I was I was born in in a naval area. My dad was in the navy, and his dad was in the navy, and all that good stuff. So that's... there's boat there's boat stuff in the past, but you know, not not really. So I mean, that's where the that's where the because for some reason I get the idea that you know you guys have been dealing with boats for quite a while. Like your family likes boats and. You have some degree of, you know, you have a fascination with them. I mean, you've built them from scratch. I definitely have always thought boats were pretty cool. And I always I always loved going out in the canoe. That was like a special treat to be able to go out in a canoe and see see the land from the from the water, which I always thought was cool. Canoes. The, how great is a canoe? I, I, kayaks, I can't get in with a kayak. Yeah, I kayaked for a couple years and they're so uncomfortable that I hate them. Yeah. Um, you're like sitting flat on your butt with your legs out straight yeah. and your feet go numb and you can't stand up and you can't, you know, it's like you're strapped in there. And uh, I love kayaks, but I don't like to spend a lot of time in them. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, no, that, I, there's something about that. It's just like, it's uncomfortable. You can't really move around. You can't really adjust. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the one, the kayak that I used to paddle was like a Greenland kayak with a spray skirt, you know, that you put the skirt thing onto your body and then you pop it oh, over the, God. the thing so and then no water can get in and you can't no, no, you can't no, that, I mean you can stop and unsnap oh, and God. yeah no it's Who like being that? in a wetsuit you're, you're in a wetsuit anyway so it's you know if you like can't do diving. the pick if you can't do the finger yeah. finger thumb pick I mean how what good is it that is just a 
a nightmare situation is what that is. Can you imagine being yeah. an astronaut and needing the thumb, <laughs> the thumb and finger pick? Can you imagine yeah. being out? No, you get out on a set. They just did a, on the on the on the Russian space sh- ship. They did like a eleven hour spacewalk. What would you do if you got to like you got to do the finger thumb scratch? You know the pick. You're yeah, screwed. You do some adjusting. There's no adjusting. Oh, you're wiggling in. in you're wiggling inside. Oh, awful. I don't know. Maybe they have like a blow up underpants in there and stuff that keep everything just perfect. You know, I don't, know. I don't really know about the inside this of a spacesuit, but I'm I would design it with like a you know like a massager built in. Wow, you know, kind of thing. NASA's and got I, and I you could vocal command vocal command. You're like I got I got a wedgie going here, guys. <laughs> okay, we're gonna add two psi uh, to your suit. Hold on, you'll be okay in a minute. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right, Houston. I need the I need the I need the auto pick. <laughs> I need the finger. I need the thumb finger pick. So back to. Sorry about that. I, I, for some reason, all I get. I always think about like how uncomfortable I'm going to be. And I remember doing a kayak trip. My friend John Ledford and I went. Got he got he loved his kayak, but he got the kind of kayak where you are sitting on top of it, so you're not underneath mm-hmm. it. So you're sitting. Those on, are reasonable. You're yeah. sitting on top of it. You're not inside of it. And then it's yeah. like because he needed to move around too. So that I can get. But the whole being sub- totally in to inside is forget it and no interest yeah it's like a really yeah like a really stiff pair of pants is what that thing is um i I liked it i really did because you could go places that you can't really with a canoe and you can get into really rough water and stuff but um the trade-offs just weren't there for me it's like hurts your back it just i don't know I feel like I was, you know, working underneath a car or something all day after after kayaking. Let me prevent my preempt, preemptively apologize to the kayak community because I uh, guess the the claw hammer community is already mad at me by last week. So I'm, I'm gonna just <laughs> I'm gonna like don't if you like kayaks, I'm for you. I'm with you. They're, yeah, no, I'm with you too. I love kayaks. We love kayaks. This is a pro kayak podcast. Please yes. don't. Please leave me alone. Just kayaks for everyone. I've leave. Whatever you yes. need, as long as you leave me alone. I love your kayak. So, when you were a kid, were, did your parent, did your dad like build boats, or was he what kind of carpenter was he? Uh, he's a house builder, so he was doing house stuff. He did build a canoe when I was a kid, um, like a strip canoe, and because uh, he, he, you know, we had a canoe or we had a borrowed canoe actually from a friend that we always used. And, um, at some point he was like, I'm going to build one of these. And he got the epoxy and he got the book and he got the plans and he went out into the workshop and built a whole strip canoe. It was great. It was really cool. How how long did it take? I think like he probably worked on it for like a year because he's, you know, had a real job and stuff. So he would just, you know, do a couple hours on a Saturday or something. And, um, then come back, you know, put it down and come back, put it down and come back to it like you do. Um, but I, I thought that, that was a cool thing when I was a kid. I was like, that's actually, who, you know, how many dads have built a canoe? Now a lot have, but at that time it was like, I didn't know anybody who had. No. So it was, it was interesting to me for sure. But the cool part is you know, my father was deep, deep, deep into um, those strip model bo- model ships, like tall ships. Oh, like the yeah. Those huge are cool. ones. He would get like he would spend real money on them and he'd get them from all over the world. And he had huge ships like museum quality giant ships. And those are awesome. And he 
was he had the little hammers and he had all the parts and I could he just like that was his thing actually and he had an office in the city and he had a swivel chair and one half of his one half of his debt one desk was his wherever he was writing his checks or doing whatever he was doing he was a land he had a landlord he was a landlord of some apartment buildings he, he did real estate and stuff like that on top of the winery but then he would swivel his chair around and he built this little work desk and he would be able to work on his boats these, oh, that is so cool! It was obnoxious, but be honest with you, because <laughs> you know he would come, he would go to work in like a shirt. He was an older guy; he was fifty years older than me, so he was like old school. He'd go to work in his suit and his hat and his you know his nice shoes and his go to his, his office and you know he'd go in and you know they'd take care of a little business and he'd go in his office and he would just put his fucking this little smock on and he would be you know he would do his little you know whatever little things he had to do with the office and he'd swivel the chair around and then then there was this you know playtime yeah this tall <laughs> ship and he was just like he was just sitting in his sitting in his office you know he'd answer a question or the accountant would show up or like his secretary would need something and then he would answer that but then he'd be like knocking in little fucking nails it would be it was just like it was so obnoxious and I'd call him and I, anytime I would call him the secretary oh your, your father's very busy right now I'm like he's not very busy right now don't bullshit me he's fucking knocking in a little brass nail he's, to put his little he's waiting for some glue to dry he's, he's waiting for some he's, yeah, he's, he's doing rigging for Christ's sakes on a little baby boat get out of here that is awesome but it was interesting because it was I just watched him with like he would just have planks and planks of these tiny pieces of wood. And I, I, um, I'd never really saw anyone do it before until I had a shop in Greenpoint and there was this little shop of, you know, there was a lot of artists there and there was one guy who was building a kayak and it was planks of strips of wood. And then he was drilling holes. And I think, I think this is 1996. So I, I don't remember as well. I think he was using wire I think he mm-hmm. was like using wire and tying them together. I don't know how that really works. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I've definitely seen people do that um, with like the stitch and glue thing where you 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 drill parallel holes and then you put a piece of wire through and you twist it. Right. And it brings the pieces of wood together. And uh, that is a method that people use for I, building kayaks and stuff like that. I, and then what do you, and then where, where's the twist go? On the outside, right? Yeah, so like you would. Um, Put the pieces of wood together, dry, do these drill holes that are like stitches, you know, parallel right. um, to each other. You twist the wire together and then you glue it with epoxy and then you pull, cut the wire and pull the wires out. Ugh. And then the epoxy, once the epoxy is set. You pull oh, you the pull the wires out, out once the epoxy's set. Yep. And oh, then, geez. yeah, so you can kind of tweak with the wire, everything just perfect. And then you epoxy, 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 and then... Once that the next day, clip all those wires and then epoxy everywhere that the wires were filling all the holes. I and never, I always thought that the wires were in there. Like I thought that that was the the, the move well, would he be as you left twist him in it. There. You might have left him in there. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, what if he scratches his legs open? He's gonna cut. It's like a, it's like a Iron Maiden inside that fucking thing. I, I, well, there's also like um, uh, the Greenland style of kayaks where they they do like lash them together. It's usually with uh, like a twine. I think originally it was sinew. Where you uh, bind the pieces of wood together with like a string rather than screwing or gluing or any of that. So it could have been that too, maybe. But sounds like stitching glue to me. I, but it's, you know, the thing is, is like, you know, you make do a wooden project, you do a sculpture or something like that, it doesn't really, it it's, you know, you make a thing that is a thing and all of a sudden it's, it's you know, it's great. 
But a boat is so amazing because once you're done, it's like, let's hope it floats because otherwise there's a lot of work for not floating. Yeah, definitely. There have been many boats that have been built and got out on the water and did not work so well, for sure. One of them is the Vasa or the Wasa. It's this big Swedish boat. There's a um, big museum. They've resurrected it. And it was a, I think it was like the most high-tech warship in the 1500s or whenever it was built. Or so they said. And they, you know, it was this big thing, you know, commissioned by the king. And they, you know, they're going to run around and kick everybody's ass on the ocean with it. They launch it. They get it out into the bay. And it just capsized immediately, sunk right in in the bay. And it stayed there until this last century. And then they pulled it up. And there's a whole museum about it. Is this, is this, what is the name of this boat? Uh, V-A-S-A, Vasa, or I think it's actually pronounced Wasa. Wow. um, That's embarrassing. Yeah. Can you imagine? You're just like, oh, we spent, we spent all the money and uh, we put all the guns on board and all that good stuff. And then we just flipped it. Oh my God. (laughs) So how old were you when you made your first canoe or boat? Uh, 30, I guess. What possessed you? What possessed you at 30 to make a boat? Um... I guess I had been I had been woodworking my whole adult life and um, building stairs and doors and cabinets and millwork and all that kind of stuff and it's a lot of squares and stuff and I think I just I wanted a challenge yeah. and I wanted to sort of learn how I could push the medium really because you know like a square box you cut it with a table saw good for you but. If you want to like bend a piece of wood and then control how it shrinks later, things like that, you know, I just, that just was way more interesting right. to me than, you know, standard stuff. Not to demean or belittle. We only have to apologize twice there. per episode. Don't worry. So far, but kayaks, we, cabinet makers. We, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. The kayak, we've apologized <laughs> to the kayak community. We've apologized to the claw hammer community. Everybody else, you, that's next week. Don't yeah, worry right. about that. You're on your. You, can, you can take a number, guys. You can, Keith. You can offend anybody you want because there's only a two apology minimum on this I'm, podcast. I'm a, I'm a speaker of hard truths. Go ahead. I like hard truths. Go ahead. But so yeah, I just I think I just felt like I was you know climbing a mountain, learning stuff, you know, and I was like, oh, there's more at the top. I'm going to keep going in that direction, and I just kept going that direction. So I went uh, to the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building huh. in Port Townsend, Washington. And since they're the coolest, I figured that would be the place to go. So, um, and then if you learn all those things about how to build a boat, you can then apply all those things to everything else you build that's not a boat. Yeah. So that's where the shipwright skills part comes in. All right, back it up. Back it up. You go for this, you go to this class, and it's in Washington State, right? Mm hmm. And how long of a a course is it? Uh, A year. I think it's longer now, but um, at that time it was 12 months every day, all day, hardcore. You were there for a year? Yeah. Uh, The mornings, uh, the first hour, hour and a half of every day was lectures. So there was uh, Jeff Hammond, the chief instructor, lead instructor, I think he was at the time. Um, He would, uh, he's a brilliant illustrator, and he would... He had three gigantic chalkboards, and he would explain step by step by step how to build like a twenty-six foot sailboat. And he would draw everything 
the entire time he was talking about it. And you would just sit there and absorb it. And lots of people would just sit there and watch. But I sat there with a drawing pad and drew everything that he drew. So I have like 300 pages of notes. And uh, yeah, so it was that really intense until coffee break. And then you'd break off and go into your shops and work on your boats. Hold on. And, uh, this is amazing. So when they, when they sell this class, they're telling you after a year you will drive home with a boat? Uh, no, no. You just, uh, after a year, you'll know how to do it. <laughs> it's an accredited program. So, you know, you get an associate's degree. Um, you get no boat and no promise of a job. But <laughs> You get no you, boat. Yeah. But you get to work on a boat, which you may or may not launch because, you know, some of these boats, they have, you know, they take thousands and thousands of man hours to build. And if everybody's an amateur, some of them don't get finished for two years, three years, you know, so depending on the size of the boat. Um, yeah. You might not even see your boat completed. We completed our boat, um, which starts, uh, you, I guess right after. So you do like an intro to woodworking or, you know, boat related woodworking anyway, for the first quarter, um, the first half of the first quarter, you're like making mallets and toolboxes and, you know, learning all the, different tools and methodologies and t and hardcore taking these lectures. And then you learn lofting, which is like, um, like 3d rendering, but on, um, on the ground, on your hands and knees, um, where you draw all the different perspectives of the boat. Huh. So you draw it from the top, you draw it from the side, you draw it from the end perspective. And then you have, so there's like uh, slices of bread, right? Right. And then there's things called buttock lines. Hee <laughs> hee. Um, the buttock lines go longitudinally, but vertical. So now you've got slices going through the boat, the long ways vertically. And then you have these water lines, which are like, if you picture the boat in the water, yeah. the water line, and then you sink it down an inch and draw another and sink it down an inch and draw another kind of thing. So you have water lines buttock lines you have station lines which are like the slices of bread and then you have diagonals so you you slice this boat up on diagonals as well and you learn how to draw like a very complicated 3d form from any angle you want huh. which makes it very easy to make templates later and you know what all the angles are before you ever build the thing and you can see all the problems ahead of time and it's uh it's a pretty cool thing. It's it's a uh, lost art for sure. Huh. Um there's not many places that teach. I don't know if you did you guys do any of that kind of stuff at art school? No. Or? Yeah, it's it's like a like a major sculpting bonus. It sounds sure. almost like architecture school. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Only I, I architects probably can't loft as well as boat builders. <laughs> so lofting is the drawing on the floor. Yeah, and that comes from, like, the loft of the shop. So you'd have, like, your boat shop downstairs, and then upstairs you'd have, like, the attic space. And you'd put down all this wood, paint it, paint the floor, and then you'd, you'd loft all your stuff up in the attic. And um, that's the lofting. And then you have this ongoing template that you can refer to anytime you need it. You say, oh, i got to build this piece, and you run upstairs. And instead of using measuring, uh, you know, rulers, uh, measuring tapes and that kind of stuff you just nowadays you just drop a piece of mylar on top of it and trace it 
And then you can bring that to your piece of wood and do what you will with it. So were you basically making a small model of the exact model of the boat and then you would just take the parts and then just kind of multiply the size? Mm, The lofting is full size. So you do a a drafting first, which is all that exact same stuff on paper, um, which is, you know, it's pretty good, but it's not that accurate. I mean, it's pretty accurate, but, you know, it's scaled down, so it's not accurate accurate so once you're happy with your drawing um traditionally like you'd skip some steps but in the last i don't know 150 years or so they figured out that the the coolest way to do it would be to maybe uh first hand sculpt a half model of the boat so you know what the hull looks like um just a a pure artist rendering you know and then you take that model and cut it up trace that trace all those little pieces and use that to start your drafting. You draft the whole boat and then you take all that and scale it up to full scale for the lofting. And then you do the lofting. So you got to draw the boat twice. This sounds, this (laughs) sounds like so much work. It is. It is. So, but you know, like a lot of these boats have very specific measurements and stuff, you know, like we don't want it to flip over like the Vasa. We, uh, so you, if you once you know all that lofting stuff or drafting, um, you can then take all these crazy, um, big long you know algorithms to figure out how it's going to float, how much power it needs, where the mast should be, you know, uh, how it's when you hit a wave, what the boat's going to do. You can know all that stuff ahead of time if you know, you know exactly what the shape is. So. I'm going to ask a dumb question. You, you, the paper, you were just using big pieces of paper that you'd kind of coordinate together, right? It wasn't just like a massive 20 foot sheet of paper. On the floor? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you put plywood down and paint it. Oh, okay. And, and then you can nail into it. So oh, like if okay. you want to draw a line with like a big long stick, you know, bend a stick or whatever oh, to okay. the perfect curve and you can nail right into the floor then at that point. Yeah. Okay. So it was like, it was like. 10 sheets of plywood. Yeah, yeah. And the the paper thing you can't really do because paper shrinks and grows depending on the humidity. Really? So like, yeah. So if you have like a 20 foot long piece of paper, it might grow like three quarters of an inch, half an inch, depending on the humidity. You know, or it's also fragile. But like that was the big thing that they impressed upon us was like, do not think you're going to use paper because it's going to change shape. Huh. And it's like, yeah, it's a good, it's a good thing to think about. So how many students were there? Um, when you were I think, there, I think our class might have had forty, maybe forty, and they had um, at the school they they would break it up into traditional small craft, traditional large craft, and contemporary boat building. So you all start out in the same place in the beginning, and then eventually paths diverge, and you have the old fashioned small boats like little rowboats and stuff, yeah. and little sailboats and then the old-fashioned big boats that's the one that's the class that i took like ships and stuff and then the contemporary boats which are more like what people actually build now what made you want to take this course because i mean in my mind like i know some people have taken boat building classes and they're like four weeks you know three weeks four yeah. weeks what possessed you to just decide i need this year-long immersion um i think i just i i had I had read a couple books on boat building and stuff, and I I really grasped that there was a lot to it. 
And I also realized that there's not a lot of people who know it. Right. And there's not going to be another time that I was going to be able to learn it. Wow. So I said, right now is the time I'm going to go for it. And it, you know, basically ate, ate everything I had doing that. But it was worth it because um, it's all applicable stuff, yeah. you know, right down to like little tiny, tiny things. When I look at a thing now, I can dissect it with my eyes, you know, without, you know, having to cut it up. I can look at a thing and see like, oh, I, I get what's going to happen with that thing. I see, I see the way it's going to sit on the floor or whatever. Um, and I just knew that if I did that, I would... You know, I'd pick some stuff up. Plus, it's a lot of engineering. Yeah. That's why I took. That's why I took the large craft. Is it's like bolts and tensile strength and like cables and you know, propellers and you know just weight and strength and it's like a floating bridge. You know, were you um, were you were you using traditional hand tools or? That's the idea. There, um, they figure. You know, you can when you get out into the world, you can use as many power tools and stuff as you want. But there, they want to kind of impress upon you, or at the time anyway, that that sort of methodical, slow, thoughtful way to do things. So you could creep up on it with the hand tools rather than getting out like the chainsaw. You know, you use the handsaw. It might take you five minutes to cut through something, but you're probably not going to cut it crooked because you're actually paying attention. Whereas the two seconds with the chainsaw, you might, you know, whoops, it's a little crooked. So I, I need to I need to get more into this because this this whole class I mean what are the dorms like I mean that's a crazy question but I mean I'm just like in my mind I'm like what are the students like what are the dorms like are you, are you staying in a dorm or are you staying in a hotel uh, We rented my wife and I rented a uh, like a little little apartment house place you know um, there were a few dorms at the time there are more now um, and they were little like little. Uh, like fisherman shack kind of things down by the water. So, but they didn't have a lot of them, so we couldn't get one. So we ended up renting in town in Port Townsend, which is an awesome place. If you ever get a chance to go, it's, uh, it's like a Victorian seaport and uh, it's actually out by Morocco. And, um, it was, I think it's like a stopping point before you'd want to go to Seattle. Huh. So, You'd come out of the ocean into the, that's the Georgia Strait or the Strait of Georgia, Georgia Strait, uh, between Vancouver and Washington. And before you take that like many day trip with a tugboat to pull your ship to Seattle, you would stop at Port Townsend and offload as much stuff as you could or whatever. So Port Townsend kind of came up as like a place to fix boats. So. There's like a wicked rich maritime tradition there. And then it's like a, uh, I think the whole town is on the National Register of Historic Places. Hmm. So it's like really cool, like old ship captain houses, you know, like people who thought about craft all day. What kind of house would they have, you know? So you wander around, they're just like really cool Victorian houses everywhere. And, and um, so it wasn't bad living in town. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And what did your wife do all day while you're taking these classes? It worked. She had a job. Oh, so you figured that all out. She moved your whole life out there. Yes. Yes, we did. We're kind of adventurous like yeah. that, though. We've done it a couple times, so, you know. What, so what were the students kind of like? I mean, were they young or old? What were the students kind of like? 
huge mix. Like uh, everything from your your uh, your hipster pirates Ugh. to your um, Ugh. your seasoned vets. Um, there's they have a GI Bill program, so they can accept uh, the GI Bill money. So there were a lot of uh, you know veterans. And there were some, you know, retired doctors who thought it would be cool to do that, too, and, like, build, you know, hobby boat building later. So there were some people there that wanted a career and some people there that just wanted a a year to do something new. Um, A real mix, though. Everything from, like, an 18-year-old kid to, like, a 70-year-old. And in your mind, what were you looking to get out of it? Um, I guess just work experience, or not work experience, but, uh, skills experience. Yeah. So when I went to go get other work, I would know how to do it, you know? Um, and I wanted to work in boats and I did work in boats for a bunch of years, um, working in boat shops, working on big boats for, you know, boat yards and stuff. And, um, that was really what I wanted to, to do is to just up my skills to the point where I would be sort of set apart from you know, oh, yeah. the run of the run of the mill carpenters. So I mean, I'm imagining this big facility and you're getting the lecture and then you break for coffee and then you go to your shops and are they, are you spoke shaving down the planks or when you're starting to build the boat at what, at what point in the boat building process did you show up? Was the boat, the boat in? Um, so you get, uh, I guess it would depend, depending on what you're building in the project, because they do sort of each boat is a different boat. They don't just build like one boat. Some some boat schools just build like, a you know, a beetle cat or whatever, and that's what they build. So there at the Port Townsend School, uh, the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building, it's not in Port Townsend, actually, but um, they get commissions. So if you're working on when we were there. So it depends. Like there were um, masts that were made from a log, you know, from a tree. The tree came in with the bark on it and they axed the bark off and then eventually turned it into a mast. Um, Some things were plywood, some stuff you buy plywood off the shelf, you know. But usually most everything on like the boat that we built was a, I think it was a 16 foot sloop. So we got all the wood in rough. Rough being like it's, uh, it would come in, if it's an inch, they call it four quarter, four quarter rough. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not been through a real planer other than at the sawmill. So it's, you gotta, if you want it to be flat, you have to joint it and plane it. If you want it to be straight, you have to joint it and then rip it. So it would come in just as like random boards, you know, and then you have to turn it down into whatever you want. So we would start, you know, with rough boards and um, depending on the species, you know, whatever you need, you want to make planks out of cedar, the cedar boards and the keel is out of oak or whatever. And you have the oak, big oak um, cants, I guess they're called, if it's like a big, a big chunk. Um, so some stuff would come in in like a big giant format and you'd have to saw it down a whole bunch of times, you know, break it. A whole bunch, you know, like a butcher, <laughs> and then some stuff comes in pretty close to the right size. But yeah, it's very much like you're making your own material. 
And are you worried about like, I mean, this, this, I'm talking about boats and stuff like that. Are you worried about shrinkage? And are you worried about like, oh, yeah. I mean, how do you deal with it? I talk to uh, a friend of ours, Keith Johnson, all the time. And he uses a lot of walnut. And he says, I have walnut. I buy the walnut and I have it stored for two years before I start to use it because of all the movement. When you're mm-hmm. building a boat in this situation, how are you are you checking the humidity or how are you figuring out whether or not put it together and what happens when it gets dry is it going to shrink apart or how do you deal with all that so like the traditional boat stuff they those guys knew what was going on so they kind of plan it into the design a lot of the time where it's okay if it shrinks kind of thing where as long as it's shrinking in the right direction you're good and sometimes like a uh, like a Windsor chair maker, for instance, will will turn things that are green and uh, then dry just like the ends of the tenons. Okay. Put them into a seat that's kind of wet, like the pine seat is usually somewhat dry, but not bone dry. And you put these legs into the seat and then you let the seat dry around it and it gets tighter. That brings me to something that I wanted to... Oh, I'm sorry for interrupting. No, so like you, you know, depending on what it is, you might want it to shrink. Sometimes it fails, you know, sometimes you, um, like frames, for instance, uh, the curved ribs inside of a boat, you know, the frames, the, uh, those, you have to steam bend them and you have to torture them into place. So a lot of the time you want that wood to be, um, only slightly air dried. It's like the moisture content is really, really high. So sometimes you might bend all those frames in and then they might dry and start to check and get cracks and you got to like rip them out and make new ones. So there is, you are playing like a high stakes game with wood drying. It's not like making cabinets at all um, because you do want some of that green um, depending on what it is. You want some of that, the the life left in the wood to be able to move it because a lot of the pieces are bent, you know, so, you, so you're taking yeah. advantage. You're taking advantage of something that is probably not desirable to most cabinet makers or woodworkers. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of like boat stuff is so curved or bent that you don't want a straight board in the first place. You're like you want the board as close to how it came off the tree as possible. A lot of the time, um, you don't want it to be ripped down into straight you know, two by sixes. You want like the full width with bark on both sides. Wow. Like, so that way you can get a really curved piece out of it. So that's where like the boat builder can use all the, everybody else's garbage. But you know, of course, cause it's a boat and it's, you got so much labor into it. You're not using anybody's garbage. You're using the best garbage. <laughs> oh, the best garbage is the, so you're like, good. you're searching for like the best wood that has the best grain that, you know, has no sap wood and, you know, it's strong and grew at the right rate, has the right amount of rings and is sawn the right way. And because of that, you have to find the right sawyers, work with the right um, people who saw the wood um, and the right foresters who drop the trees too. you know, they'll know like, oh, the wood that comes off of this side of the hill, like that's the stuff you want because it's, you know, that's, that's the good stuff. Every, oh, the last 10 boats that were built all were good out of it, you know? So it's it's very much like you got to get connections. And once you find somebody who you like the wood that they produce, you try to use them over and over again. I loved what you were doing. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. What you were doing with Jesse Savage 
and you were steam bending axe handles and you were making oh, i gotta do some more of that that is so much fun i one of the things I, I i saw you guys were making steam bent handles for axes and i was like this is really cool and then i actually watched i guess i interviewed alex Steele a year and change ago and at the time his dad he started doing videos his father is very accomplished in furniture making using green wood Oh, okay. And actually, he did a YouTube video of series, I don't know if it was like maybe a few months ago, where he and his dad built uh, green furniture. Because his mm-hmm. dad is very accomplished in the traditional styles of green furniture, where you take wood and you he's got like a steamer in his backyard and they're steaming the wood for 24 hours and they're running it in and bending the wood and <laughs> they're making the, the tenons to fit in the hole. And then you like you were saying, you want to dry it a certain way so it tightens up and stuff like that. It was so fascinating. And then it reminded me of you and Jesse making steam bent axe handles. And I'm I, bringing it to the shipbuilding stuff like that. The, the steam bent axe handles seems like such a smart idea at a great amount of work. It is a great amount of work. Um, I think I kind of got that idea from the boat building thing yeah. where you like. So take me through, take me through, life. take me through how you would steam, how you would make a steam bent axe handle. Okay. So um, it's pretty much the same way I would do the nets that I make. I have, I'll go out into the forest and find a tree, the tree I like, cut that tree down, cut it to some reasonable length, tow it the hell out of the forest, split it into quarters. What are you looking for, though? When you're looking for that tree, what's the tree that says, this one's the one I want? So for something like uh, chair parts or, well, or the axe handles for that matter, you want something that grows pretty fast. So you're looking for something that grows in the forest. If it's growing on the edge of um, on the edge of a field, say, it's going to grow. Uh, not, I, I guess I don't mean fast growing, but I do mean fast growing. But if you're looking, if you're at the edge of the forest on the in the field, the tree is going to shoot branches out earlier on in its life because it's not competing for sunlight. Okay. So say it's a foot tall, and a branch already comes out of it, and it's like sweet, getting some more sunlight. But if you're deep in the forest, that tree has to get so tall right. competing with all of its little friends to try to get to the sunlight that it grows r- like really tall before it grows any branches. Right. I know exactly. So you don't have knots. About. So you're looking for something that doesn't have knots. You're looking for something that's pretty straight and you're looking for something without a lot of twist. So all trees pretty much grow like a corkscrew. And I don't know if that's from the seasons or if that's from the rotation of the earth, what, but they pretty much corkscrew. Um, so you're looking for one that has the least amount of corkscrew and the least amount of knots down low and then the right species. So you got to, you got to find the right species. And, um, like this, this log that I currently have is ash, uh, which will probably be extinct in our lifetime. Why? Uh, there's a emerald ash borer that came from Asia, probably in pallets, and um, it is rapidly deforesting the continent. It, a lot of a lot of places, all the ash is already dead. Um, 
in the Midwest, I think they've already cut it all down. Down south, it's all been cut down. Probably in your area, it's being cut down. Up here, it's they've just started finding the ash borers in the last few years. And ash is it's a really sad story because ash is a great bending wood. Um, and it's been traditionally used for a lot of stuff. Um, the Native Americans used to use it for snowshoe making. Um, lacrosse sticks, field hockey sticks, airplane propellers, um, a lot of chairs and things like that. Uh, ash is a really good bending wood. It's also extremely light for how strong it is. So like this one that I have right now, I'd be, it's ash. So I found the right straight tree that I liked in a dense forest, cut that tree down, dragged it back, quartered it. So it wouldn't uh, check if you leave the, um, if you leave it in a round log form, the cracks will form any which way. But if you quarter it first, the long way, um, by splitting it, like you're splitting firewood, but you're splitting a whole log. Then the checks, uh, then it shrinks like the pie pieces, the four pie pieces will shrink individually and not be fighting each other, not fighting the whole circle, you know? Ah, I see. I see. Because it's fighting the outside ring of the, I yeah. see, I see. Yeah. Huh. So that's where you get the crazy checks that go everywhere. So if you, if you split that log quick, like, like the next day, <laughs> I mean, you have, you have time definitely, but you know, you split it as fast as you can and then you can let that kind of hang out and air dry for, you know, a couple years if you need to. Um, but because it's been air dried and not kiln dried, the lignin in the wood is still pliable the lignin being like the glue that holds all the fibers together. So if you kiln dry the lignin, it becomes like amber, like a fossil, you know, like hard, like glass. So it's, it's pretty much ruined. They call it kill drying. But if you don't kiln dry it and you air dry it, you can actually like reconstitute it later by soaking it. It'll take up the water and the lignin will just turn right back into a liquid, basically more or less. Huh? So you air dry it for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And you don't I have mean, to monitor it, and you don't have to. You gotta like uh, put it up so like air is circulating all the way around, yeah, right? Yeah, you want to keep the direct sun off of it. You want to keep it from getting too hot. Um, you also want to keep bugs from eating it in the meantime. Do you do so that? you want to like chop off all the bark. You know. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Really, most of the bugs are in the cambium layer of the tree, which is the growing part of the bark um, in the inner bark. So the cambium layer transports uh, nutrients up the tree like a vein. And the heartwood is basically dead in the middle of the tree. I mean, it's not dead, but it's call it dead. The cambium layer is the part that's your veins. So the cambium has all the sugar in it and the bugs are going for sugar. So if you can get all of the cambium layer off of it, the bugs pretty much leave it alone usually, unless there's you know termites or something. Hmm. But so you want to get all the bark off of it, let it sit, and then you can come back to it later. So for like the axe handle, then I'll I'll or like um, a fishing net that I would make, I'll go back out to my shed, I'll grab one of those pieces out, and I'll then split it again, um, long ways to get a piece out, and you end up with like a pie wedged piece. And then you got to turn that into a rectangle, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like firewood until you kind of like mill it down to 
Yeah, and yeah, definitely. Do, do you notice? Just, I'm, this is fascinating because it's fascinating. So when you're milling it down, is it because it's still, you know, there's water in it, right? Is it easier to mill down? Way or? easier. Yeah, yeah. Because that lignin hasn't been like fossilized, crystallized, or whatever. I guess it's crystallized. Um, it's way easier on the tools. So when you see like all these old hand tools that are, you know, um, draw knives and even axes and stuff. A lot of those old tools came about, you know, hundreds of years ago, way before they ever kiln dried any wood. Right. There was no kiln drying back then. So those tools were designed to work on what we'll call green wood in quotations, not really green anymore, but we're going to keep calling it green wood, um, air dried wood. So because they don't have that hardness in them, the wood, the pliable wood is easier tooled and it's easier on the tools. So your edges stay sharp longer. You can picture it. It's like, it's yeah. softer. It's not necessarily less strong because it's actually sometimes more strong because it can bend more without breaking because it's still flexible, but it's more toolable. So a lot of those hand tools really are, they work way better on air dried wood than they do on kiln dried wood. I mean, like, it's so much so that when you try to, like, if you took a piece of air-dried walnut and took a hand plane to it, you'd be like, this is kind of fun, yeah. you know? But if you took a piece of kiln-dried walnut and you're planing, it's more like Chippy. dust. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, it doesn't suck, but it's it sucks compared to air-dried for sure. So, yeah, I mean, if you can get air-dried for that, that's great, you know? The thing about the air-dried wood, though, is that it may have bugs in it. So you have to be like super diligent about looking your pieces over, you know, cause you don't want to make a piece of furniture, put it inside somebody's house and then find out that there's, um, powder post beetles in it or something. And that got into, God. you know, that got out of the chair and then got into the framing of the house. Nice. Yeah. That's like, that's <laughs> so worse than the like, guy's boat. That's worse than that giant boat that flipped over. Oh yeah. And it's happened. Um, I've actually, I, I knew a guy who actually got um, a call one day and he had to get on a plane and go and check stuff out for this, another person that had uh, done a whole bunch of post and beam work and they had not carefully looked through stuff and the, um, the powder post beetles were in there and they got the house and the guy's sitting there at his kitchen table and all of a sudden sawdust started falling into his dinner. Oh, yeah. And he's like, what the hell's going on? And he looks up and he's like, there's a little hole right there. And he said, you know, he went out, um, I, f I forget which state it was in, but he went, you know, got on a plane and went and checked it out. And he's a professional timber framing expert. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got powder post beetles or, or whatever he had. And, um, they had to fumigate the whole house, you know, tent it off and and fumigate the whole house. Ugh. Like, yeah, it came from the furniture. <laughs> it came from, uh, yeah, some big fancy like timber frame style furniture that somebody had built, like a big table, big chunky slab table, you know, and it had bugs in it. Oh and my it got, god! It got into their timber frame house, and it was like, yeah, that's. And they could tell because when they picked the table up, it was like, yeah, this is just riddled riddled with bugs. Oh my yeah. god, that's disgusting. And you can you can get away from that by just taking that same piece of wood and steaming the hell out of it. It'll kill any bugs that are in it, you know. But how do you steam a table without it turning into like a yeah. Dorito? 
Good question. You'd have to do it beforehand. Oh. You know, before you ever started to work it, you could take that slab and steam the whole slab. So back to the axe handle. You've 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 made it into a rectangle, you've drawn out the shape. What part are you are you carving it straight and then steam bending the back end of it? Yep. So you kind of like pick the best grain. You want your like for an axe, you want a continuous grain going through the eye of the axe all the way to the butt of the handle if you can get it. If you look at like a hardware store axe handle, they they're not like that. And you've seen a million axes with broken handles, right? Sure. Like, right, right, right at the bottom, the right where the where they split right yeah, at the bottom because yeah. they're cut out with the the grain go. I know what you're talking yeah. about, yeah. So like if you have grain run out, um if there's grain run out, that would be like a slope. Um one term that I like is a bastard sawn, like a, you know, like a bastard file right. that has the diagonal. Yes. So when you see a piece of wood that's bastard sawn, it has that diagonal grain. That's all run out, right? So if you picture it, that grain isn't strong. So if you jumped in the middle of it, it would snap on a diagonal. Right. right. So you want that like long, straight grain that's perfect end to end. So you'd shape your axe handle with that perfect grain as far as you could get it. And then you'd make um, like a strong back, and then what's a strong know, back? Look, a uh, basically a the the opposite shape jig, you know, um, and that would be something that you could clamp against. Yeah. So you you would make a jig that you could clamp and then pull down and tighten down. Yeah, exactly. And then how so long are you steaming the that your? So are you are you getting everything? So the eye is all ready to go. The whole thing's ready to go. The last thing you're going to do is bend it. Uh, no, I mean, you kind of map it out and you leave it oversized and then shape it after because during the steaming things change, you know, and during the drying things change too. Um, most wood, if you start out with a green piece of wood and make it into a rectangle, you come back to it and it'll be like a diamond shape vaguely. It'll, it'll, it shrinks, but it doesn't just shrink evenly. It'll, it'll shrink like tangential to the rings of the tree. Jeez. Or or co-tangential, depending, but tangential to the rings of the tree. So the same thing that makes it check, you know, it's this weird shrinkage that's tangential to the rings. So you'd get your piece pretty close, you know, pretty close to what you want, and then steam bend it, and then do the final shaping later, because after you steam bend it, you want to dry the hell out of it until it's as dry as it can be. So it doesn't shrink later and the axe head doesn't get loose. How long are you steaming the wood and what does the steaming chamber look like? Well, it depends. I have a couple different steam chambers. I have pipes, you know, like PVC pipes and metal pipes that I use. Okay, big Um, ones, like four inch, six inch. Yeah, and then I have have a couple that are small and a couple that are big. I found a piece of um, aluminum, thick wall aluminum that I like and it, it actually works like a heat sink. So when you're steaming, like the pipe gets like insanely hot yeah. compared to like a wooden box. It gets just like nasty hot. And I feel like that box gets hotter than the rest. But my big box is just uh two by 12s and two by eights, maybe just screwed together with no caulking or anything like that. And, um, you want to make sure that the steam can go all the way around the piece. So you wouldn't want it to just be laying on the floor. Right. So you have to have like props to keep it up. Um, like in the oven, you know? Right. It's like you got to have that circulation. The convection has to happen. So I have a bunch of different boxes and basically they're all the same. They have a door on one end or a door on both ends and then a hole somewhere in them that I pump the steam in with. And then kind of an escape hole on the other end. 
So that convective process, the steam will go out, you know, all the way through and come out the other end. And what's the steam device? What's putting the steam in there? It depends. So one that I have is just a wallpaper steamer, just like okay. a Wagner wallpaper steamer that you would get at the store. Um, and that just generates, uh, it generates steam. It's not that hot. It's sort of like a, I don't know. It's like a consumer grade thing. Right. And then I have, um, another one that I made, uh, I took a, it's like an expansion tank from an old, I found it in the woods, uh, an expansion tank from an old, um, heating system or something. It's like a big thick walled, you know, water tank. And it has a fill on one end and it has a steam uh, pipe that I welded on the other end. And you fill it up partway with water. And I set that thing into like a 50 gallon drum and I just burn wood like it's the gates of hell underneath it and boil like 30 gallons of water, maybe 20 gallons of water. Get that thing to ripping steam. And then the steam is coming out at like whatever it is, 212, I think steam is atmospheric pressure. No idea. So you get that steam is coming out. It can't, it, you can't get steam hotter than, I think it's 212. It might be 214, but you can't get steam hotter than that without putting it under pressure. So a pressurized steam box is not a smart idea unless you want to get burned or exploded. Ugh, but Can you imagine? It, oh my God, no. <laughs> I mean, I've looked at the steam box a couple of times and been like, yeah, don't get near that thing. But I open it with the welding gloves on and stuff. The the big, you know, the big uh, arc welding gloves, you know, or stick welder gloves. Um, and is that how they used to do it back in the day? They would just make like these big pots and they yep. would just almost, it's, it reminds me of how they process maple syrup. Yep. Similar. You know, similar. Um, yeah. It's actually really similar. It's like this, uh, you're trying to, you can't let the steam boiler get empty or you'll melt the, you'll melt your tank. So you got to monitor how much water is in there. But uh, yeah, you just want to get as much hottest steam as you possibly can into that box, get the box up to temp. Um, and then it's all wet and dripping and crazy. So you got to, you know, think about where it's going to drip. There's always like, that's always a thing. It's best if it's outside, but sometimes you got to put buckets underneath it and you know, it's, it's chaos. That would be the move, by the way, if you did maple syrup steamed, you do two at once. So yeah. You're burning, once. The, burning your, 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 you're boiling down the sap and then you're in part using the steam to steam your wood. I have 100% seen people cook lobsters in a steam box. Shut the fuck up. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the whole clam bake thing. You know, you can do that. You can definitely cook in your steam box. It's only 212. With the, so gotta... with the, with the wood in there, too? Yeah. Oh, my God. But can you, ima- can, but can you imagine doing stinky, the... Stinky lobster boat? Can you imagine you have this, like, your, your axe handles smell like maple syrup? I don't know. That might be a fucking might be thing. Nice. That might be a new uh, a new can, thing. Then what you can do is you sell the axe handles with the maple syrup that you use to that the byproduct of the steam. Look at there you. you. Now we're now we're going full circle. I mean, you this can't make it up. I mean, it's it's perfect. It's perfect. That's some, that's some that's some honest to god Vermont hippie that's shit right some, there, Jeff. Dude. All you need to get is some fucking hemp soap and some fucking <laughs> sandals. Make some sandals too. Make oh a patchouli God. oil. 
You're in oh, business, man. man. I'm in business. Holy Christ. Maple maple scented axes. Everybody would be sniff sniff oh, this dude, axe. I would totally buy. I would totally buy. <laughs> not to mention he's like this not only did he make this axe handle, but this is the fucking syrup that was the byproduct of making this axe handle. You kidding me? I love now you got me thinking. Now I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to modify my maple syrup system. Dude, can you do it, two things at the same time? It's the same amount of wood. There you go. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's some Yankee stuff right there. New Yorkers yeah. come up with this. We we're, we're very uh, resourceful. Don't, don't forget exactly. So I will not forget. So bring it back to bring it back. So you got your you got your you got your piece of wood. It's ready to. It's in the steam chamber. How long is it yep. said to sit in that chamber? I can imagine it, that like a big thick axe handle has got to be in there for a long ass time. Yeah, it sort of depends on the wood itself. Some wood steams faster than other wood, depending on the density. But in general, the rule of thumb is like an hour per inch of thick thickness. Sorry, um, an hour per inch of thickness in general. Huh. So, if it's a half inch thick, it takes a half an hour. But well, the it. thinner it gets, the less time it takes. So, it's kind of like uh, yeah, because. If you put it in for too long, it actually dries. It's really counterintuitive, but if you oversteam a piece, it dries. So, because the heat is actually like transporting the moisture out of the piece of wood. The outside might be wet, but the inside is getting drier and drier and drier. So, if you forget and you leave a piece in that's, say, a half inch thick and you leave it in for two hours, it's done. So, you break it like a, like, you know, dry twigs. For some reason, I assume that it was like... It's got to be al dente. <laughs> for some reason, I assume that it was a long period of time. So that makes me realize how efficient, how efficient steam bending is. Because, you know, an hour or two of steam isn't that much fuel. Way more no, than, I, way less really than not. I thought it was going to be. I thought you were going to tell me it's yeah. going to be 24 hours in the steam and you're adding water all night long. No, no, no. It's actually really quick. I think a lot of people overdo it, and I think they wonder why their pieces aren't that great. And it's like, yeah, you're steaming it for way too long. Hmm. Um, yeah, it depends. There's other traditions where they boil it. So you put like a pipe into your fire, and you fill the pipe with water, and you boil the pieces, which will make them not dry out. And then you can let them stay in there for a long time, um, and they won't dry out because they're submerged, you know? So you're... On time, your your piece has been in there for two hours. You know that it's ready to go. Do you have your jigs ready and your clamps ready? I'm, I'm imagining you don't have a whole lot of time before taking your wood out of the steamer and then putting it onto the jig and clamping it down. Oh, yeah. You have like maybe two minutes. Two minutes? You know? I mean, you know, before you start to have noticeable difference oh. in the amount that you can bend it. So, like we were doing a, framing a schooner. And we had, uh, what were we doing? They were 16 feet long. They were two and three quarter by three and a quarter pieces. So they stayed in there the short, the, sh the time of the smaller dimension. So like the two and three quarters. So they stay in there for like two, two and a half hours, three hours. And then we pop those suckers out of the box, have the box as close to where we were going to put these frames into the boat as we could. And, um, as I popped them out the box, I was pre-bending them in a little jig I made before bringing them to the boat just to, like, limber them up. Right. And sticking them back in the box again for a couple minutes to get the heat right back up to the exact temperature. You know, it's hot as hot as hot that you can't touch it hot. And then stuffing them down into the boat, and then they would bend, you know. But 
if you had that box, you know, a hundred feet away from the boat, done. just, just the air rushing over it as you're running, you know, running with the stick, just that amount of air, you know, like you get on your bike and you can feel it's much colder. Yeah. That amount of air rushing over it will cool it down. So sometimes like you'll steam, um, in a plastic bag, we call that the boiling bag method. And, uh, you'll, you'll put the steam, you'll put the piece into like a big plastic bag and then pump the steam into the bag. So that way there's no gap between it coming out of the box, touching cold air and going into the, the boat. I w- and then you just slice the bag off after it's bent. I would also think that like you could probably pre bend it. Maybe you didn't bend it enough. And then once you've realized it's too, it's not bent. Correct. It's probably too big for the fucking box. Exactly. Yeah, you can't go back in. Exactly. Ugh. You're smart. Yeah, the geometry is not there. Where right? It's like, oh, shit, you ruined bent. it. Yeah. Ugh. No, you only get one shot. You can't put it back Ugh. in because because you've dried it. Really, like this, the core of it is starting to. You've dried it out. Like the outside, it's hot. Everything's liquid, but it's it's drying. So you really like if you don't get it, if you put a piece in for an hour and then you go, oh shit, we're not ready. Well, you got to throw that piece out. Oh, like, like that piece is done. Oh, so you, you, you mean like it. you have to prime it. You have to have everything ready to go. Otherwise, and how long for that piece, that piece of wood for the boat? How long did it take to prep that piece of wood to get to that point where you had to throw, exactly. throw it away? It's like gold at oh that my point. God, you know? what a and it's, and it's the hands. right board. You know, it's like not only did you shape that piece of wood, it's like that piece of wood was the right piece. And you might not have any more. You might have to order new wood oh you know yeah so and sometimes you get wood and it just doesn't want to bend and you have to throw it all out oh my god so everyone's just shrug vaulting and going crazy yeah it's crazy it's very stressful that sounds so stressful it's super rewarding when you win though oh i can imagine because it's <laughs> i remember when we were doing at the center for middle arts john ledford and i were doing some railings or we were making some like um we were making bode pickets for like about for like a uh you know bellied pickets for a railing that would you know look outwards yep and then there's those. Ba- those belly pickets and I, we'd have two jigs ready to go and we'd have the st- we'd have the steel and one guy was on the clamps and one guy was at the thing and we would have to kind of walk through it because we wanted to get it right on the first one we wanted to you know bend it in the first jig correctly and then go straight to the second jig it was a two-part jig and i just remember I never thought we wanted to get it right the first time, and it was a drag when we didn't get it right for the first time. But I never thought we got to throw this out. We just we would just heat it back up and then put it back in, and it was just like he would curse at me, which is fine, and then you know we would <laughs> fix the problem. But like the idea that like the pressure, I don't know how these old guys used to do this. I mean, it's almost like it just seems so. It, this is why I went to boat school. I was like, I need to learn this. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> it's like I need to I need to figure out how to master that because that is just a wild thing to me to to think like the stakes are so high. What did I liken it to? You're juggling chainsaws while you're riding a unicycle on a tightrope, you know? I mean, it's like what, don't fall. What was your level <laughs> were they what was your level of, you know, failure with wood pieces in the school? Hmm. Like, would you often be like that? We put like twenty hours in this. I mean, I can imagine that there's just there's splitting and then there's drying and then there's you know planing yeah. and then there's preparing and I could just imagine that there's just a, a, sub, a substantial amount of 
I think probably for f- like the frames that are the ribs, that's like the most bent part. Yeah. Those are the high stakes ones. There's a 20% failure rate maybe or 25, 10% if you're really lucky and you're getting lucky. But when you average it all out, it's probably a 20% failure oh, rate geez. on frames. And a lot of it is just the, the wood. You know, it's the wrong density or it's the wrong density in that one spot or there's like a weird piece of grain or. or I would um, imagine the humidity in the in the atmosphere, you know, the time of year would be would probably be in your in your way, too. Yep. Yep. When I was in California, it was especially hard because it's wicked dry there. So you put the wood um, like we would get the wood and like throw a bed of shavings down and hose the shavings down and then like put the wood on the bed of shavings and like wrap it in a tarp to try to keep the humidity on it and then try to use it like it's broccoli you know it's like that broccoli's gonna go bad yeah <laughs> you better use it or you're gonna come up to some slime because now you've like encased it you know and uh yeah you gotta like then you're then like the clock is ticking because mold starts to grow and that kind of stuff so oh, yeah, you want to keep mold. it like wet but not too wet so <laughs> and then dry but not too dry when you're it's, dealing it's, with the boat how are you dealing with mold with the boat because i mean you're at a, i mean i would imagine that in washington it's on the humid side oh yeah, yeah. so what, how Boats do you deal with terrible like that so what do you um, do uh, people clean them, you know, you just wash stuff down with bleach. You use, uh, the, you know, the 20 mule team borax, no. you, every, everybody's favorite, oh, uh, flux, yes, 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 flux, yes, yes, borax, yes. flux. So the borax, um, is awesome for killing mold. So you mix up a bunch of hot soapy borax water and run around and kill that mold. Um, mold is like the death of the wooden boat. I've opened up boats before and had them look like, uh, leopards. Uh, yeah, or like, you know, when you see like the veins of mold, like it looks like tree roots or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like because there wasn't air circulation behind like a fuel tank or something, the mold just started to grow and then it propagates through the wood. And um, like the thing you do when you're in elementary school with the celery and you put the celery in the glass with the food coloring and it makes the celery blue or whatever. Like the mold does the same thing in the wood. It goes like right down the grain. Hmm. So like the the straws of the wood will transport that mold elsewhere. So if a piece of wood has mold on one end, it's it's in the whole board. So yeah, you, mold is your worst enemy. You're always fighting mold. So back to the And in plastic sailboats too. I mean, oh. plastic sailboats are moldy. <laughs> yeah, but they don't like you don't suck them. Yeah, else. they don't rot like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so back to the axe handle. You have your axe into your steamer for hour. You got your jigs ready, you got your clamps ready, you pull it out, put it on the jig, strap the shit out of it. I don't know how you bend that little, that they, I don't know what they call the bottom end of it. So much force. How do you, what is the bottom end of an axe call, that part where your hand, you know, you hold your, you know, you're not. Is it called the heel or the toe or something? I don't know what that's called. How do you. There's like the swell, I don't know. How do you pull the swell? We don't have to ask anybody. I don't know. This is fine. (laughs) Listen, if Roy Scott is listening to this right now. He better send me a DM. If he doesn't, I'll tell you in the next few episodes if he has sent me a DM. That means he's not listening. So if he's not listening, he can't ask a question. So there you go. Roy Scott, you have, right, you have, you you have a month to send me a yep. DM. Or otherwise, exactly we're one over. month to tell us what or the butt over. end of the handle is called. You and I are over, Roy Scott. We're over. All right. So back to <laughs> back to it. How do you pull that? How do you, how do you get the, do you put like a cheater bar on it? I mean, how do you get that mm-hmm. swell? 
Oh, so you get like massive amounts of force. Yeah. So you got to put. I, I actually designed some big clamps for it that I haven't shown, but I should do. Hopefully, when I get some free time, I'll make some more axe handles because I would love to do that. I have all the wood, and I made some weird clamps to do it. Uh, some hydraulics yeah, or something like that. Yeah, they're like big clamps I made out of a, a piece of um, square tube, like. T- 12 by 4 or something like that from the steel yard and um I, I put like a clamp body into the big box so it can't escape because yeah you break clamps when you're steaming for sure i've broken maybe 50 clamps before just snapped the cast iron right in half um like the big the big jorgensen clamps yeah, yeah. the bessies all of them Break them, snap them in half. So you're bend, bend the shit out of pipe clamps. You're out of the. You're out of the. You're out of the chamber when you're. Could you possibly put the jig in the chamber and like take advantage yeah. of that atmosphere and like try to bend it in the chamber? Yeah, that's where I'm talking about the boiling bag method, where you get um, you go on U line and you get the endless shrink wrap tunnel, but not the shrink wrap. That's like plastic okay. wrap. And it goes in like a shrink wrapping machine. I don't know if you've ever used one of those, but it's like a roll of plastic bag that has no end, okay. right? It's like 200 feet long or whatever. And you tie off one end and you stick that steam hose right inside that sucker with your piece in it. And then you can actually put your piece on the jig with the steam and slowly clamp it down with the steam still shooting in That's it. That's the move. Which is well, it's pretty good. That's the move because then the bag is also forming t- around your jig, yep. so it's not in the way. That's true. What the thing I don't like about it is the waste. You know, it's garbage. Right. It's another garbage bag. It's right. more landfill food. I don't like the waste, um, but I do like the technique. It's oh, because really you're, good one. you're. I've used it for big planks and stuff when you're trying to steam a giant plank onto a boat and it's all twisted and weird and it's like, okay, it's going to have uh, eighty clamps on it. It's twenty feet long. And we're going to need four guys to bend the thing on. Either we could all frantically do it like insane people as fast as we can in the two minute window, you know, or five minute window. Um, or we put the bag on it and just slowly bend it in because you can keep adding steam. And it's like you never took it out of the steam box. And then and then how do you and then you don't I mean, you just clamp it down. And then after how long would it how long would so once you clamp down your axe or the wood, how long are you waiting to take the clamps off? And is there, there's not, you're not, obviously you're not using it for the, for the ship. You're not using glue anyway. So you're just, right. you're just forming it and then you're letting it, how long would it cool down and then hold the shape? Um, it depends. Like if you're going to build like a Windsor chair that has the, uh, continuous arm, you know, where the arm goes up and yes, yes. does the back and then comes yes. down as the other arm, something like that. I like to leave it on the jig and then put it into a kiln and dry it while it's on the jig to the right moisture content, like 6% or whatever you can get um, in the so jig. A, so the clamps yep. and the jig, they're all going into the, into the, into your oven. Yep. So I have like a, I, is this a light bulb kiln, which I got from some chair makers. I got the idea from some chair makers. It's just a plywood cabinet that I made that has light bulbs in it and um, gets up to maybe 90 degrees and has some holes. So air can escape. And um, I'll just put my piece after I steam it into that and then let it like normalize, you know, because yeah. if you just take it out, it'll spring right back to flat. I mean, not flat, but, you know, it'll it'll spring right back to some stupid shape that you don't like. Um, and if you don't get all the moisture out, it'll just keep moving, you know. So you want to like 
freeze it in time and you do that by drying it with like a kiln so uh, back to the boat i mean how would you you don't kill you can't kill and dry the piece of wood afterwards right nope no so you got to wait you got to play the waiting game and you got to have a lot of jigs um sometimes oftentimes on like the traditional boats you're using a lot of fasteners so you like bolt it in place or whatever um sometimes you tie stuff with wire like you were saying the uh the guy was building the kayaks like that so you like wire take your you can wire it off it's not going to come springing back with as much force as you applied to it so you like wire it down and then take your clamps off so you can go use your clamps for something else and then just let it season for as long as you can um you basically are trying to play that game with like getting it back to like an equalized dryness with the atmosphere Hmm. so yeah, it's it's a weird one for sure. And the, like you can't just bend an axe handle, bend it, and then take it off the jig and walk away. It'll be straight when you come. So back. when you so for the axe handle, you're putting it on the jig and then you're clamping it down. and Then you're putting it into your little light box, or yep, or like I uh, had Jesse put his next to the wood stove and just let it cook next, dry out next to the wood stove. And then how long is it clamped in for? Like a week. A week. Uh, yeah, sometimes it could be less. You know, three days, four days, but it wants to. I like to be sure. <laughs> I don't want to go through all that and then be like, damn, I took it off too early. But like when I do um, like a hoop for a fishing net and I take it off my jig, the spring back is like an eighth of an inch. Wow. Like it, it barely moves. I was going like to ask you that, like how much for like an axe handle, how much, how much is it spring back? It really depends. You know, part of it is like if you got it hot enough, you know, like there's some amount of spring back always, right. but. Part of it is like if you if you got it just perfect, you shouldn't have much spring back. But there are ways to calculate spring back. So usually you overbend stuff. So you like make your draw your line that you want, and then like add an inch to it or half an inch or whatever it is. Um, calculate a little bit of spring back and say, okay, I'm going to bend it further than I want. Right. And then when I take it off the jig, it's going to pop to where I actually want it. You this the ship the shipwright class that you took seems like it has it has completely made you i mean it's it's fascinating because i get i get the feeling that it clearly had a huge effect on you oh yeah definitely um definitely yeah it's it's just a different mindset you know it's um there's a million books on cabinet making and stuff and it's very sort of rote you know you can just sort of like this is how this works, and it always works this same way, that that way every single time. With, like, the boat building, you have to be, like, fluid in your thinking. Right. You have to, like, you have to be like, okay, I'm going to make this plan, and, if, and if, if it goes south, I've got a plan B, you know? So I really liked that about it, where it's like, oh, what if it isn't the right wood? Well, then we're going to have to saw that curve out yeah. instead, of, instead of bending it. Because we can't get that bent. Sometimes that happens too, where you're like, best laid plans, it's not going to work. And you have to come up with a new, a new strategy. Or you like, you're trying to recreate something that somebody else did in the past with better wood than you can get now. Well, it definitely it's, seems like there's yeah. a lot of prediction involved. Like, Big there's time. a lot of like, there, I worked for a, woodwork, a cabinet maker for a while, and there was, his expression always was, kill, let's kill the doubt. And we would, yep. killing the doubt was like, you know, going over, you know, not 
I mean, it wasn't, we weren't like bending anything. There was not a lot of prediction. I mean, obviously we were having, you know, we were dealing with like shrinkage and stuff like that. The Mm -hmm. wood shrinkage or expanding or stuff like that. But a kill the doubt was something that I always took away. And and I would think for basically, you know, the shipbuilding and, you know, axe handles. And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about your trout fishing nets, which are bent, they're beautiful. Uh, Thank you. That, that there is so much like wood prediction in the fact. I mean, I was so fascinated by what you were saying in terms of like the kind of wood you're, the tree that you're looking for. And there just seems to be from the beginning to the end, it seems like there's just a lot of, there's a lot of prediction. There's a lot of faith. There's a lot of like, well, it's just going to be the way it is. And it seems like it's, it's a, it's a very, I feel like it's almost like a, a little game of mental chess. Yeah, it's like a little philosophy, yeah. a little little bit of mental chess. Yeah, for sure. Because it isn't just like I take a piece off the shelf and I cut it and then I put it together and that's how it goes. So, like, oh, but this but this batch was different, right. so it's not going to play that game, you know. Yeah. Oh shit, well I got to do this other thing to it first. So yeah, there is a lot of prediction for sure and planning and I like that kill the doubt. I'm going to remember that one. That's a good one. Well, you know, it makes me it makes me think about you know you know you 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 hang out with the, you know Jesse and us all the modern forge guys and I think we have very similar there's a there's a similar I never thought that woodworking and metalworking were the mindset was very similar and now I'm starting to realize that like where you where you went and the things that you've learned is is very similar to the philosophy of blacksmithing where there's you know organizing your time and understanding and then this just takes the way it is and you kind of move you always have to move forward in blacksmithing and imagine with that type of woodworking there's no moving backwards you know and and that's yeah that's something that i think really drew me to blacksmithing too is like it, it is like the manipulation of the form there is no going no. back. Like when you're, when you're drawing out the reins on your tongs or whatever, it's not like, oh, I'll just pack that back together and uh, make them short again. You're not doing that. Like they're they're going in that direction. Like you, you could maybe upset them, but you're not going to upset them back into a rectangle bar, like the same size that they started out. There's no going back. It's, it's, it is, it's, as I've said this a million times, I'm going to say it again. Blacksmithing has turned, is the closest thing I have to real philosophy at the age that I'm at and to the point where it's getting closer to being religion than anything else because everything like you were saying in terms of the shipbuilding the the shipwright class you took it has kind of permeated all the aspects of the work that you've done and there is a similarity there yeah there is sort of like a dogmatic element to that I guess you're right like when you which I think maybe is where like some of the like old timers are happy to give their advice and some younger people are less than happy to take their advice. Right. Is that, yeah, there is like a bit of dogma where you're like, I know that this is the way that this is going to work and I see that you're doing it wrong and I'm going to try to save you from the heartache of realizing that you did it wrong, you know, and that's, some people aren't great at taking advice. But that comes with age. But yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And experience and 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 actually making the mistakes too, right? Well, it's like you gotta coming to the coming to the point where you've been through a lot of ringers, and you understand failure, you understand success, and you understand to kind of like back off and just kind of accept things for how they are and try to kill the doubt. You, the older than I, the older I am, the more, the more. 
I'm a little bit. I'd be, I some days I think I'm more conservative in in my approach, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'm still I'm thinking that I'm this idealistic, arrogant kid for, in college who thought I was the hottest shit of all time. So it is very interesting because I kind of go back and forth for, with both of 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 that kind of mindset. But when you're when you're put in the position of loving a system like what you're doing, the steam bending, and just it, it, there are certain things that you just can't freeball. There are certain things you cannot out. Off road, it's just not, and it's the same thing with yeah. blacksmithing. There is, there's, there's science and there's truth that you just can't kind of go around. And I feel like once you come to the grips with accepting it and appreciating it and being able to work with it how it is, like I love the fact that you know I know I, I built a table for friends of mine out of two by fours, and it was great and it was fun and it was painted and it was great and everything like that, and then. It dried out in their house, and the fucking thing split. Like every spit, every between every every plank of it, it, it all it all like split. And I was that'll happen. Well, but I mean, you. But the fact is, when you talk about the, the what you've learned with steam bending, it's like accepting that this is part of it, and we're we're taking advantage of the this what some people would be say would be a disadvantage. You're taking advantage of this disadvantage, and you're kind of like accepting it. And I think that. I think that there's something about age that allows you to appreciate the fact that, you know, I can't just like do whatever the hell I want. It just there are, you know, rules and regulations that are out of my control. Yeah. And sometimes you can go out on your own path, like you can do something that's never been done. But if you're going to go out on that new path, there might be a really high rate of failure. Right. It's like modern art, right? It's like uh, classical art paintings and stuff. Like, if you follow that school, like you're uh, from Florence or whatever in the Renaissance, you know, like, this is how you're going to get the lighting just right. And this is how I'm going to make this face pop out. And this is how I'm going to make the eyes look at you and all that stuff. Like, if you follow that recipe, you're going to come up with a beautiful piece of art, right? But if you're like a modern artist and you're trying to create something that you've never seen before, you might have glory. It might be awesome. It also might look like shit. Yeah. Right. So it's like, I don't know. You got to find that happy middle ground, I think, that keeps your creative creative juices flowing, you know. But at the same time, you're not just constantly getting punched in the face. I tell you what, that makes it's fascinating that you say that because there's two. I have two different I have two different points of view on it and they, they both compete. But they, I can't you know, one doesn't knock the other one out. One is I feel like a lot of times the one of the best railings I ever did, even you know throughout the years, was the first railing I did, where I'd never Ooh, worked for a metal worker, I'd never worked for a railing guy. I had no idea about spacing. I had no idea about sizing. I had no idea what things are supposed to look like, and it was it was crazy. But at the same time, and then. I look back on it, and then when I I was afraid to bring it to the to show after I did all these railings, I was afraid to show the, the people that I worked with what it looked like because I was like they're going to laugh me out of this place. And then the <laughs> older I get, after doing mil- doing lots of railings, I thought that's still the fucking best railing I've seen because I didn't have any of the trappings of what it's you know putting air quotes in what it's supposed to look like. And I think yeah. that, that there there's that there's that like I didn't get lucky. I just did what I wanted to do and then it just turned out right. 
I mean, right. was it was it square and everything was on the money? No, there's probably some parts in this railing, and I'll, I'll probably post. I'll post a picture. I think I, I think I posted a picture of this railing before. I'll, I'll try to do think, it again. Yeah, I think I remember you posting it well when back. I was talking with Jesse. It, it was oh, okay. So, yeah. so you have that point of view of like not being influenced by what you're supposed to do, but then the other competing th- philosophy is. You know, when you talk about those artists down in Florence getting into modern art or whatever, without a basis of technical information, you kind of can't do the stuff that you want to do. Like when I was taking drawing classes in college, I wanted to draw all sorts of shit. And my teacher was just like, listen, shithead, you got to draw this apple the way I tell you to draw this apple because you need to know how to do it right. And I, you see guys like um, Peter Brasmanix. You see guys like uh, yep. Fred Christ is the Fred Christ is my, as far as I'm concerned, is is one of the great leaders of traditional blacksmiths who have. Mm-hmm kind of sh- uh, taken away the shackles of the traditional he ran the uh the the uh Samuel Yellen shop for years and oh, he's wow. actually if you want to listen to in an old blacksmith's pub episode uh Jesse and Rick interviewed Fred Christ and he he's the one guy actually I I think that John Ariani is my modern version of Fred Christ where he's taken traditional uh, teachings, traditional ironwork, and he's been able to kind of make modern, you know, cont- I don't want to say modern, but contemporary art. He's been able to use the techniques that he had, he developed, and this is, you could say the same thing for, for Pat Quinn, where they've taken mm-hmm. the traditional techniques and allowed them to use those traditional techniques and then push aside the trappings of what you're supposed to do and then make what would be considered art. Yeah, and that's kind of what I think my my idea with going to the boat school yeah. was, was it was like I, I want to build boats, but even if I'm not building boats, I can apply that stuff to everything else, you know? So I, I, it's, I think it's a great idea to be able to take the best of tradition and the best of the modern, you know, inventor and combine them. I think in this day and age, you kind of need to do that anyway. Well, this brings me to something that I've been wanting to ask you about because, you know, your experience with and your knowledge of woodworking and steam bending and all this really like traditional stuff that hopefully doesn't go away. I, I'm afraid that all this shit's going to go away. But one of the reasons why I think it's going to go away is because there's a lot of philosophy nowadays that taking away what people would refer to as, you know, stupid work or difficult work is now being, it's easier to get CNC machines. It's easier to get laser printers that are plasma cutters that you hook up to your computer. It's easier to get stuff, you know, cut out on your plasma table and, 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 and or CNC'd. And, and it's, and, and there's this mindset with a lot of younger guys, and I'm kind of going to start changing my views on, in, uh, when we talk on knife, talk about it, about it kind of degradate the degradation of how hard it is to make those parts how do you see because i know that you do besides you also have a cnc machine and you do a lot of sign work and stuff like that with the computer stuff how do you rationalize and i'm not make casting aspersions how do you rationalize all your experience with this traditional stuff with all these new things that people are, you know, these new pieces of equipment that people are able to have and then they can make these beautiful signs and they can do this stuff very, you know, easier than like if you had to get the chisels out, how do you rationalize it all? 
Ooh, listen to that. Listen to that big deep sigh, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's what you call the motherfucker. I got him with yeah. one. Come on, baby. That's a good question. I mean, it, yeah, it's hard. I think cost is a huge yes. part of it. I think. I think t- today things cost so much. All of our lifestyles cost so much to to keep going. Just to stay alive, you got to have a certain amount of money that you can't spend your whole life cutting a perfect circle right you know um you can you can cut that circle and you can be expert at cutting it but if you're taking so much time to cut that perfect circle that you can't get enough work done what are you doing why not get a machine that cuts perfect circles to cut your perfect circles and then you use your brain for the other stuff you know um, I don't know. It's kind of tricky. It's, it is tricky. But I think I think like if you, it's weird too. Like it's like um, if you try to skip that step of learning how to cut the perfect circle, or even just learning how to draw a perfect circle, um, there's something lost there. Where you you know the robot can do it for you, and that's great. But it's pretty nice to be able to use a compass and 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 know how to use it well. You know. Um, I think it informs your design a lot. Um, I think, and I think a lot of the stuff is actually faster done by hand, which was one of the cool lessons of the, the traditional boat building class was like, sometimes a hand plane actually is the fastest, you know, it's like you, you could mess around with a skill saw and all this stuff, but it's like sometimes instead of making a dozen jigs, you just get out that knife and just start whittling. You know? Yeah, I mean, you, draw knives. I mean, it's you can't get yeah. fat. Yeah. You see, like I've seen a lot of the videos of spoon carving and stuff like that, and you see how fast the technique is that you can't right, do with a like grinder. An ancient tool, yeah. you know. And it's yeah, exactly. You'd be spending all day in a million belts and electricity and your time and to do what you could do in thirty seconds with a spoke shave. Right. You know, it might take you an hour on a belt sander or something. Well, um, so it it depends, like. You know, you got to kind of find that middle ground, I think. And that's where I like to kind of, hi- you know, hi- hybrid woodwork. Yeah. A-, a lot of people think that there's like uh, some sort of badge of honor and do only hand tools, and only hand tools. And that's great. And there is, there's like, a, there is honor in that. It's like, it is an honest thing. But. Does it matter? We live in, we live in the modern right. times. And if you're like, oh no, I don't, I don't use a planer. I just adds all my pieces to thickness. And I, you know, it's like, and then you see people making excuses. They're like, oh yeah, the underside of the table is always all scratched and chipped and looks like shit. Cause you know, that's the way it is. Cause I do it with a hand plane. And it's like, yeah, but when I'm laying on the floor, I look up at the table and it looks like crap. Why'd you do that? I mean, it's like, well, when I'm, cause now I'm making excuses for my hand. Tools. I mean, where can I, I, when I make a space for all these beetles to live, it's got to look nice, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, when I have all my wood bores and my beetles, yeah, I'm saying, like, I got to make it nice put for it through a planer. You could have just put it through a planer. I know. And used a power sander, and it would look just as good on the bottom as it does on I the top. I want them live. I want these wood bores living in the nicest. I want these wood beetles, these post beetles, living in the nicest yeah. furniture they can possibly live in. I'm not I skimping. Want the cat. I want the cat to think yeah. that the table is cool. Yeah, I want. You know? I totally. I want door. I want a doorman. I want a doorman yeah. for the beetles. I want the whole. I want apartment <laughs> buildings. I want the mailboxes for all these fucking beetles. No, are you kidding yeah. me? I'm going to full blast for those guys. I th- yeah. There's a James 
James Krenov, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy, James Krenov, he was a famous woodworker and he was kind of like, yeah, the bottom of the piece, the back of the piece should be just as good as the front because one day somebody's going to be moving that piece of furniture and they're going to be like, no shit, the back is just as cool as the front. That's mental patient time. It is mental patient time, but he was like a real philosopher (laughs) like that. He also would only put his signature somewhere that you'd never find it unless you were moving it. Because he was not like one to hot brand his pieces. He was like, no, no, you don't need to know who made it. You need to see the results and respect it for what it is, not for who made it. If there was and, a philosophy in the in the in my father's my father between my father and my sisters and I, if there was a, a family motto, it would be, ugh, it's enough already. That would be <laughs> that would be the model because it's just like, and uh, that's pragmatic. It's like you know? how far we have to go because if it was me, if I was this woodworker, and you said to me, "Listen, Jeff, you gotta have to have it nice on the bottom," I would carve in the giant "fuck you." So, so if you're moving it, that's what you get. You get the giant like, "fuck you." Yeah. You shouldn't have been under here in the first place. You know, this isn't right. for you. This isn't the right side. You shouldn't be this under here anyway. Yeah. You want this it, you got it. The top of the you want it, you got it. Like a big finger like a big carved middle finger it's like you're not supposed to be here go some go on the top side you're not supposed to be on the top side i find it very fascinating because you know when i first started batching making batches of knives obviously i couldn't afford to get stuff laser i didn't even know how to get stuff water jet cut and stuff like that so i was doing batches of 10 15 20 by hand mm-hmm. and i learn to understand it and appreciate it when I was in metal shops we'd make escussion plates or we'd make plates and we'd have to you'd have to scribe something and then the hardest part was do you keep the line you'd let leave the line and how tight yeah. do you go and, and 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 it was very very it was very it wasn't just like just hit it with the grinder and then you know get the slag off it it was very very specific especially when you're grinding on the inside of a curve how do you do that with a grinder mm-hmm. how do you do that and make not make sure make sure it doesn't have any lumps and stuff like that and it to me it was like it was it was important to me to be able to do that stuff and make sure my holes are drilled correctly and make sure that you know obviously it's not perfect but then what happened was is i really wanted to make sure that my work was reasonably priced and Mm -hmm. part of that was getting a water jet cut and then it allows me to pass the pass the pass the uh, the savings on and you know it cuts down some of my labor which is what the the hard part is but it and it gives you consistency too and it gives you right? consistency mm-hmm. but at the same time like I still to, to I, every knife I make is not water jet cut. There's a few that I get water jet cut, but I do a lot of like a lot of you know batches of stuff that's not water jet cut and I do like the idea of being able to be I like having to make sure that I'm getting everything tight. Like I think that there is something val- there is value to be able to to do that. I appreciate the the tools that make the life easier so I can try to you know make a business out of doing something you know having a having something in your mind executing the idea and the design and then giving it to someone and you know try to make enough money that it can work i I love it yeah that's the pragmatism right it's like how am i going to make this actually work but i do feel especially seeing what's going on on instagram and people becoming content creators and, and, and and the ideas of getting these pieces of equipment and using them I feel like there is a lot of lack of the lack of appreciation of doing the hard work. And I feel like, especially with metal workers, 
I hear things that come out of their mouths that tell me that they've never been in a metal shop before. I hear, I hear words and expressions and mindsets that make me know this person's never worked in a professional metal shop, which isn't bad, but like it's, it, they're, they're words that are very like, they're very, I hear them and I know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. I mean, I think, I don't know. In in this country, we don't have apprenticeships, you right. know, but in other places, they wouldn't let you get away with that shit. Right. You wouldn't, you you know, what's a master? Masters has their own shop, you know, has people working under them. It's not that that you have like a real mastery of your craft necessarily. Maybe you do. Hopefully you do. But it's sort of more like you have your own shop. And how did you get there? You were a journeyman. And that was when you traveled around and worked in several different shops and picked up stuff from other masters. Before that, you were an apprentice where you worked for a journeyman and a master picking up all the basics yeah. and i think a lot of people think they skip they skip the apprentice they skip the journeyman and they go right to master it doesn't make you a master necessarily or maybe you are a master but it doesn't make you like a master of your craft you know you don't have mastery of it you're just the master of the shop and uh, yeah i definitely see that a lot and you know you and i both school of hard knocks worked our way up the rungs and you know, you started out sanding and sweeping the floor and keeping your mouth shut. But if you never had to go through any of that, you might not have much appreciation for, you know, tasting the fruits of your labor. You know, it's uh, I don't know. It's a weird situation we're in where, you know, people are. I don't know. They're skipping steps for sure. Keith Mitchell Absolutely. is not skipping steps. No, you're the man. You're the man. I had to. I had to bring. But one thing I wanted to tell you when you were talking about the best garbage, you were talking about. Uh, I wanted to tell yeah. you one quick story. We got to get the hell out of here. You were talking about something's the best garbage. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I had it. Uri Hoffy, when he when last time one of the last times I saw him, not the last time, but the, you know, a few years ago, a, a number of years ago when I saw him, I, I had him sign my uh, he was he I had him sign my my Hoffy hammer, and he wanted to say this was years before I mean when I first met him, and he wanted he asked me what my name was, and I said it's Jeff, and he started laughing, and he says Jifa, and I said no 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 not Jifa Jeff, and he starts laughing like hard, and I'm like he's like no you are Jifa. And I said, well, what's Jifa? And he says, in Hebrew, that means you see, sometimes you see sewage. And you see sewage on top of like a, a stream. You see sewage. And then I said, oh, I said, is that sewage? He goes, and then he puts his fingers up and goes, not just sewage, but the best sewage. The best garbage. You are. <laughs> the stuff that roasts the top. He said, you're the best garbage, Jifa. You are the best garbage. So that was. Oh, my that's, God. Yeah, I'll never forget that. That's and then, awesome. And then I, I, so he writes the fucking whatever he writes down in, in, in Hebrew. On the, and I sent it to a friend of mine who, who speaks. He, to, who, I, I thought he said, you know, nice to see uh, Uri Hafi. And my friend who speaks Hebrew, I said, what does this fucking thing say? And he goes, to my best friend, to my friend garbage, to my friend sewage, <laughs> all the best. So he wrote, he's like, why is he calling you sewage? I'm like, eh, I guess I'm the best garbage. So You're the best I'm garbage. the best garbage. Guys, go follow Keith Mitchell, a.k.a. 
shipwright skills. Now you know what a shipwright is. Now you know about his skills, shipwright skills on Instagram. Definitely go to his website and read his blogs. You can see all the pictures that he's done. Sometimes he's selling boats, ladies and germs. I mean, he, he's, he's got boats for some boys. Got boats. You got a couple. There might be some boats for he's sale. He's got a couple you know? boats for sale. He's got fishing. He's got these beautiful steam bent trout fishing nets. You should definitely go check him out. Shiprightskills.com. Go check him out. He's a fucking great guy. He's no longer part of the. I think you're no longer part of the the Modern Forge team. I, I I'd like to bring I want you back you guys to take me back. I, I, I want take you to take me back after this whole conversation. I think the boys will take you back. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I believe it. I want them to take me back. We're taking you back. We're taking you back, Keith. All right, guys, <laughs> listen to me. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your support. Here's what you can do for me is go to wherever you listen to this. Give me five stars. Give me a nice review. Tell your friends. It helps me. And if you are a small business looking to hear some tight, tight, organic reads, go to Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. DM me and we'll work something out, okay? Keith, thank you so much for coming on. You are the man. Thank you so much. You're the man. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.